if you have your Bibles, turn in Matthew's Gospel to chapter 26. Matthew 26. The week after Easter this year, we will finish our three plus years in Matthew's Gospel. We really have been in it that long. And we have taken some excursions to Malachi and Elisha and most recently to Esther. Uh, but in these last few months, we're going to look in detail at the last two and three days of Jesus' earthly presence and ministry as we lead up to His death and resurrection. And so we begin that with where we left off back in November. Matthew chapter 26, I'll be reading verses 6-16. through 16. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray Him. This is the Word of the Lord. I, uh, I enjoy going to the local flea market, and my kids really enjoy going to the local flea market. And I know many of you do as well, because I've run into a number of you as we've been shopping around the, the flea market here in Stewart. Uh, one thing that's challenging about shopping in the flea market is teaching my kids that not everything they see is worth buying. Some of us grown-ups need to learn that lesson too. You know, it may be cool, you may really want it right now, but is it worth the price that they're asking? And often I would judge that no, it's not worth it. Well, we could ask that same question about how we spend our time. Is this really worth all the time that I spend on it? Or we can zoom out to the even bigger picture and ask, how am I ordering my life? What am I really pursuing and really after? And is it worth my life? When we say that something is worthy, which is a word you've heard a lot already this morning, when we say that something is worthy, we mean that, that it deserves what we give it or what we give for it. It has great value. And whatever is most worthy deserves everything that we have. Everything that we could possibly give it. We all have something in our life that is most worthy. Something that we would give anything for. That we, we order everything in our life around it. And God's Word challenges us to consider what it is that we organize and order our life around. What we give our money and our time to. What we're willing to stake our reputation on and base our image around. In other words, what do we consider most worthy? And as people in church who got up in the cold weather of this morning, you're thinking, well, I hope it's pretty obvious what I think is worthy. I'm here after all, aren't I? I think Jesus is most worthy. And I hope that's the case, and I trust it is. 
But the challenge is that there are many other things that we will, in our heart of hearts, pursue as most worthy while still keeping close to Jesus, as we're going to see several people in this story from Scripture do. We, uh, we think we're pursuing and obeying Jesus, but we put something else on the throne of our heart. So what does it look like? What should it look like for us to live as if Jesus is most worthy? The person most deserving of all that we have to give. And what are the ways that we miss the mark and fall short on that? Well, I want to start by looking at the, the end of the story that I read this morning. Uh, you know, Matthew... Uh, all the Gospels include these stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they put them in a, in a little bit different order at times. And Matthew has very intentionally placed these two stories together. They may not have happened chronologically in this way, but Matthew is making a point in how he has placed these stories together to set up the question of, what is Jesus worth to these people? And, and, and the story of this woman making such a great sacrifice compared to, to Judas who betrays and sells Jesus, is meant to show how they valued him differently. So I want to begin by looking at Judas, who shows us what it looks like to to live and to declare that I am most worthy. Verses 14 through 16 says that one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him, that's Jesus, over to you? And so they paid Judas 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. So how does that show that Judas was living for himself? Well, follow me with me on this. We're going to get there. But first, we need to look at the price that was paid, the 30 pieces of silver. When we look more closely at that number, we can find it. You know, It's referenced in Exodus as, as the price paid for a slave. Uh, but most significantly, we see in the prophet Zechariah. Kids, if you have your red folders, Zechariah, Z-E-C-H-A-R-I-A-H. Zechariah tells a story of his experience serving as a shepherd over sheep in Israel. And, and it was a symbolic act. It was something he did to teach a lesson. Because he, he led the sheep and took care of the sheep using uh, two staffs, shepherd staffs that he named Favor and Union, which is how God led his sheep, Israel. And yet, the people who hired him to do the job, Zechariah says, they detested me. They didn't want me to do the job anymore. And so they wanted to fire him and send him away, and he wanted to leave. And so in Zechariah 11, verse 12, it says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. I'll be out of here. But if not, just keep them. I'm leaving either way. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. They rejected the shepherd and gave him 30 pieces of silver, just as Judas, the chief priests, rejected Jesus who came to be their shepherd at a price of 30 pieces of silver. But wait, Pastor, that, that could be reading a little too much into it. That could be, I mean, not every number means something. So how do we know it's not just coincidence? Well, if we read on in Zechariah 11, verse 13, look what Zechariah does with the 30 pieces of silver. He says, I took the silver and threw them into the house of the Lord, into the temple, to the potter. And in the next chapter of Matthew, we go on to find out that Judas, having received 30 pieces of silver, feels overwhelmed with guilt, realizes he's sold out Jesus. And he takes the 30 pieces of silver, and it can't be a coincidence, he takes it to the temple, to the house of the Lord, and throws the money there. And the chief priests say, well, this is blood money, we don't want it, so let's, let's use it to buy a potter's field. So the money that Zechariah received as the rejected shepherd was thrown back to the house of the Lord and used for the potter 
the money that Judas received, the same amount for rejecting the shepherd of Israel. 30 pieces of silver thrown in the temple and used to buy the potter's field. Brothers and sisters, these are not coincidences. Even Matthew says this was to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken. And so Judas' 30 pieces is the price of the rejected shepherd. Now we need to ask, why would Judas and others reject Jesus? It's because he was not what they wanted him to be. When we see ourselves as most worthy, when we say, I am the one that I order my life around, we live in pursuit of putting ourselves first, and then we only allow in our lives those people or things that support my plans, my vision, my goals. Those that know me well know I am not a handyman. I need help around the house. But when I do try to fix something, I don't always know the right tools for the job. And so what I will sometimes do is go out to the large tool chest that my dad left behind for me and and I start digging through and I pull out all the tools that might do the job. And I take them with me and I try them. No, that's not going to work. No, what was I thinking? No, I don't even know what that is. You know, I just try to find the right tool. And if it's not serving my purpose, it's of no use to me. And I cast it away, at least until the next time I need to fix something. And that's what we do. That's what we do with people. And and more tragically, that's what we do with the Lord. We have a goal. We have a life that we want to support. We have a vision for how things should be. And so long as God is supporting me and my plan, He is of use to me. But if God calls me to go where I don't want to go, to be what I don't want to be, to do what I don't want to do, or to give what I don't want to give, I cast Him aside like a tool that no longer serves its purpose because my purpose is me. Because I am most worthy. When we expect Jesus to be a certain type of Savior or a certain type of King or a certain type of God that suits our own desires and plans and He fails to do that, when, when Jesus doesn't do what we want Him to do, it's hard to accept Him. Perhaps Judas had reached the point where he recognized that Jesus wasn't going to be what Judas wanted Him to be. He wasn't going to do what Judas thought He should do. And because Judas's way was most important to Him, He rejected Jesus. When Jesus stops following our way and supporting our plan, we leave him. You know, in, in John's Gospel, there was a time where Jesus was speaking to the crowds. It was actually right after he'd fed the 5,000. So they are, they are pro-Jesus. They are all on the Jesus train. In fact, they're ready to force him to be king, which is what they wanted, not what Jesus wanted. And so Jesus started saying and teaching some things that were hard to accept. Some things they weren't on board with. Some things that didn't support their plan and their purposes. And then Jesus says in John chapter 6, it says, when many of His disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Be careful of disappointment when Jesus stops following your script. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. Life isn't playing out the way that you want it to, which means God isn't giving you what you expected from Him. He's not giving you your fairy tale romance, your prosperous, comfortable lifestyle, your sense of mental well-being and peace, whatever it is, He's not coming through for you. 
And that means he's not serving his purpose for you. Or maybe the struggle for you is that God's way doesn't fit with the path you've charted and that you're on right now. The life you want to live, the things you want to believe, the choices you want to make. And at times like that, we need to remember that in Mark chapter 8, what Jesus calls us to do and what we just sang is that if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We don't follow Jesus hoping he's going to add to our already planned out perfect life. No, we have to deny ourselves and say, I am not most worthy. I am not most important. What I am pursuing needs to be set aside and, and actually needs to be put on the cross in order for me to follow Jesus. So I urge you to examine your heart. Is the prayer of your life right now, my kingdom come, my will be done? God, let's get on board with my plans. No, we'd never be so crass as to say it that way. What are we really desiring? Is your life's pursuit based on and built around the idea that you are most worthy? Take up your cross. Put such thoughts to death and look to Jesus. There's another group in this story. The next pursuit we see looks a little bit more spiritual. Those who in verses 8 and 9 object to what the woman is doing. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now that, that, sounds, that sounds nice and holy, right? That sounds like the right thing to do. We have a lot of money, let's give it to the poor. The gospel, one of the Gospels says it was Judas who actually vocalized that thought, but Matthew tells us he wasn't the only one who was thinking that, which makes me think maybe Matthew was one of the ones. Matthew the tax collector, Matthew the numbers guy who's thinking, that's worth so much! And that's where my heart would be, if I'm honest. I'm like, this thing is worth so much, could you just like maybe dip a little bit? I mean, do you have to pour the whole thing out on him? Let's sell much, so much of it and, and give to a good, worthy cause. They're not speaking selfishly as if they are most worthy, but their highest value is something else. It's other people, which sounds very scriptural, doesn't it? Put the needs of others before yourself. What should be the focus of our life's pursuit? What is most worthy? It's to help and serve other people. That's what they're believing. And it's dangerous because it's very close to the truth. These are his disciples. These are his followers. They're on board with the mission. They're following Jesus, doing what he teaches as far as they understand it. They've learned that Jesus does care about the poor. In, in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is first beginning his public ministry, he reads from the, the prophet Isaiah these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. They'd heard, his disciples had heard him tell the rich young ruler in Luke 18, Sell all you've had and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. He didn't say, sell all you have, buy this fancy expensive oil and pour it on my head. He said, give it to the poor. So the disciples have this mentality of this is the most important thing. This is what we ought to order our lives around. And if we're honest, many of you, some of you may have been first attracted to following Jesus for this very reason. His values such as caring for the poor, upholding a high standard of morality, protecting life. These are values you share. And because Jesus supports that, 
you're on board. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. I mean, a couple might first be drawn together and interested in one another because of a shared love of a sport or movies or uh, uh, something else. But like the movie, like the uh, the song "Breakfast of T- at Tiffany's" taught us from the one-hit wonder, what was it? I didn't prepare this, so I got to remember. Deep blue something, I think, is their name. And I'm not forgetting the third word. I think it actually is deep blue something. They sang a song. Uh, it's about a couple breaking up because they have nothing in common anymore. And he says, "But what about Breakfast at Tiffany's? We both like that movie, right?" And the point of the song is that's not enough to build a relationship on. Okay, what first attracted you to Jesus might have been something you liked about Him. But there has to be more than that in the end. That can't be the only thing that you share with the one that you claim to worship. We would hope and we would expect that you share some of the values of Jesus. But if that's your only reason, then here's what's going to happen. Sooner or later down the road, you're going to get mixed up. If others are the most important thing in your life and Jesus is merely an avenue or a conduit or a means to the end of of helping others, then you're going to get mixed up. Because sooner or later, you're going to find something else, some other cause or way that seems to do a better job of meeting the needs of other people, which you have now said are most important and ultimate. And the reason that's going to get you mixed up, because as good and right as it is to help the poor and the needy, no amount of money or food or shelter will meet their deepest need. There is nothing you can give to meet their deepest need. Only Jesus can do that. No resources, no gifts, no social program will rescue a soul from hell. Only Jesus dying in the place of sinners will do that. And so if meeting the physical needs of others and and, and trying to meet their needs is our highest priority, we're going to get mixed up. We're going to fall short because in the end, we can't meet those needs apart from Christ. So if Jesus is just a means to an end, we're not doing it the right way. So the disciples, they see this great gift, this valuable offering, and their reaction is, hey, 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 there's something more important than anointment right now. Let's, let's sell that and put the money where it's really needed. And how does Jesus react? In verses 10 and 11, he's aware of what they're saying, and he says, why do you trouble this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. We're not called to simply agree with Jesus on helping the poor or whatever it is. We're called to adore Him as well. And if we only follow Him so far as He's helping us accomplish some other agenda, and we're not adoring Him and placing Him first, we're falling short. He's just a means to an end. Something we use to accomplish what we think really matters. People are important, but not more important than Jesus. I want to dig a little bit into this verse 11 because of the way it's been misused over the years where Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you. Sadly, that's been used by many Christians over the years as an excuse not to give to the poor. Sort of a fatalistic, we can't fix it, so we shouldn't even try. You know, There'll always be the poor, so why bother? Why bother? But it means the opposite of that. Jesus is actually referring to uh, the Old Testament here in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Moses, communicating the word of the Lord, says, you shall give to him, meaning the poor person, freely. 
and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. You're not like, oh, fine, fine, I'll give you something. No, your heart shall not be grudging because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. You see what Moses is saying from the Lord here and what Jesus is saying? What follows the idea that there will always be poor? Therefore, don't stop being generous. The work of helping the needy will never end. So don't stop being generous. But what Jesus is saying in Matthew 26 is not, you're always going to have poor people, so don't bother with them. You can't solve that problem. Don't waste your resources. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying in Matthew 26 is something very specific. More along the lines of there is a time and a place for everything. If you want to help the poor and serve them, there will be a time for that. But they are not the most important thing in that moment. In that moment right there, obedience and service to God is most important. The need in that moment was not service, but worship. Not service to the poor, but worship of God. It's a very specific, unique moment as we see. When the Son of God was preparing to give His life, He was, he was going to go to the cross the next day. And that took priority. God wants us to care about other people. He wants us to give a high priority to meeting the needs, especially of the poor. Other people do matter and have worth. Have worth. Don't hear me wrong on that. But why do people matter? Why should we care about people? It is because they have the image of God. They matter because we put Jesus first. What gives them worth and dignity is that they are in God's image. And if we remove that from the equation, then we have an idol that we are serving in other people. Jesus is what matters most. He is most worthy. Everything else matters through Him and because of Him. If we get the cart before the horse and make other people most important and our highest pursuits, we get lost and we won't be able to meet that need. Finally, having seen that it's, it's dangerous and deadly to say that we are most worthy, it's insufficient and confusing to make others most worthy, we lastly look at this woman at the center of the story who sees and acts on the knowledge that Jesus is most worthy. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus is at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. I mentioned this is recorded in other gospel accounts where they tell us how much it was worth. It was worth about a year's wages. Imagine taking something that was worth an entire year's work and breaking it open and dumping it on someone's head. You know, that's some expensive shampoo there. Okay? But not only that, it was a special oil. Unique. It was used for burial. It was very symbolic and significant. But I want you to notice the way she offers it. The context it wasn't like they were sitting at the table and Jesus says, hey, 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 you know that flask of super expensive oil you've got? Bring it out. I want you to do something with it. No, the, whose idea was it? It was hers. She brought it out. She wasn't commanded. She wasn't forced. She was compelled. She wanted to do this. And not only that, she doesn't do it privately. Instead, she opens herself up to criticism she does it in a way where other people might think less of her and even condemn her for what she's doing. She risks her reputation in doing this. 
But Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. And I think it's beautiful to see that if we were to sum it up, we have this woman who's setting aside her own reputation, making a great and costly sacrifice, not because she has to, but because she wants to, because she has judged that whatever it costs and whatever comes of it, Jesus is worth it. There's a degree to which this is a unique set of circumstances. Like I said, we're not called upon to repeat this. It's not saying, go thou and do likewise. Okay, None of us are anointing Jesus' body for burial here, like verse 12 says. He says, look, she's preparing me for burial. That's what's coming up here. Which, which is funny that uh, ancient sources tell us that in Jesus' culture and day, that, that, uh, that oil that she used would be used to anoint bodies for burial, but if, if a person was being executed as a criminal, they would often be anointed before their execution because otherwise they would be unclean after. So maybe this woman knew what was coming. You know, the disciples had been told for three years what was coming. Jesus had said, it's about to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be dead three days. I'm going to rise again. And they still didn't get it. Those 12 guys didn't get it. It seems like this woman might have understood what Jesus had been saying all along. Maybe she didn't. Maybe it's just coincidence. Either way, either way, Jesus didn't just say, well, it's okay for her to do this. Let her go. We'll let it slide. She doesn't know any better. He doesn't just say, well, she's not wrong to do this, so let it happen. No, she's commended. He says, this is a beautiful thing. And he says, it's going to live on. In verse 13, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I have heard this story told in the People's Republic of China. I have heard this passage told in the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. All around the world, wherever the gospel is preached, this woman is commended for what she did. Because what she did not only was a beautiful thing, but it showed us an example of the gospel. Of the one who set aside his reputation willingly took on great personal sacrifice, gave up great riches for our sake. So we're not called to prepare Jesus' body for burial the way she is, but we are called to respond to Jesus and His worth the way she did. We're called to act without concern for how others are going to see us when we obey, when we express our love for Jesus, when we worship we're called to give and to sacrifice in a way that might not make sense. To give up time during the week that makes your friends think you're, you could spend it better doing other things. To hold views and positions that make you lose face. To give up money that makes you have to tighten your belt a little bit or choose a different standard of living. And this woman, like her, we are called to give generously to God as 2 Corinthians 9 tells us, not out of some sense of duty or obligation or grudgingly, but each one must give based on what he wants to give in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. giver. So this woman shows us not only the gospel, but also how we ought to respond to the gospel. As we sang last week in our worship, when I survey the wondrous cross on which Jesus died, what is our reaction? Well, one of the things we say is, when I look at the cross, I say, if, if the whole realm of nature, if everything in the world was mine, that's still too small of a present for me to give. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing and so divine of Jesus on the cross demands my soul, demands my life, demands my all. 
But worship, worship is not always or only pragmatic. Worship is not only good when it gets results. There's a, there was a TV show a number of years ago called Parks and Rec. And there were two characters, it was a comedy, sitcom sort of thing. There was two characters who, once a year, they had agreed that they were going to have a special day that they called Treat Yourself. And what they did is they went out and just spent money on themselves. They said, you know, we, we spend our whole year just thinking, is this good for my budget? Is this necessary? Do I need this? You know, I like that outfit, but I have, do I, I don't need another outfit. I don't need another pair of shoes. I don't need, they said, one day a year, we're going to go out there and we're just going to treat ourselves. We're not going to worry about if it makes sense, if we need it. We're just going to enjoy it. I'm not saying that's how we need to live for ourselves. I'm saying we need to kind of adopt a little of that attitude in our worship where we don't pause and think, you know, is, is this, does this make sense? You know, is this going to be useful? No, worship is good because God deserves it. As we, as we confessed in our, our call to worship this morning from Revelation 5, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing, and anything else you can think of. He's worth it. Is worship only good if it, if, I, if it makes me feel happy? Is worship only good if it attracts a crowd? Is that our goal in worship, to get a large crowd? Is worship only good if people have either A, cried, B, clapped their hands in excitement, or C, fallen on their knees and repented of their sins? Otherwise, Randy, you're failing in the music ministry if that hasn't happened. No, that's not how we measure worship. Worship doesn't have to have pragmatic results. We need to be extravagant. We need to stop measuring, is this gonna, is, do we really need to do this? No. Sincere worship is good in and of itself because God is worth it. Does he need it? Does God need our worship? No. We can't imagine him as some, some deity who's up there needing a big self-esteem boost. And until enough people are praising him, he doesn't feel good about himself. No, that's not how it is. I could go on for hours and hours, and I'm not, not going to, about all the times in Scripture that God rejects worship. He rejects worship, especially in the prophets. He rejects worship that is done on the right day, with the right words, and the right instruments, in the right style, and this, that, and the other. He rejects the worship because it's insincere and does not come from a heart that is rejoicing. God does not need us to declare His worth. The heavens declare his worth but in worship what happens is we enter into the joy of God's goodness we don't just recognize and declare it we experience it ourselves but I don't want to leave you there because that's that falls a little bit short of how the gospel makes us able to recognize and respond to the worth of Jesus the Bible says in Philippians 2 that at some point Everyone, whether they want to or not, is going to recognize the worth of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether they want to or not, every creature is going to confess the worth of Jesus. Some will be forced and compelled and ashamed and guilty as they do so. That's not the kind of worship we want for you. I don't want you putting on a fake smile and maybe even daring to raise your hands in worship because you feel like you have to. And what I want to do instead is turn your eyes to Jesus. 
reflect on, think on, meditate on, remember what he has done. Remind you that the gospel of Jesus makes this possible. The gospel tells of the one who made a great sacrifice with no regard of how others would see it. Not because he had to, but because he chose to. Your Savior did that to you, for you. So when you are called to worship God, to recognize his worth, you're not being called to cower in terror at his might. You're not being called to shield your eyes from the glare of his perfection. You're called to recognize the grace that God has given you, the free salvation that he has poured upon you and still does. That as 2 Corinthians 8 says, he who was so worthy sacrificed his worth, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He takes his grace and pours it on you. Your life, we say this often in our call to worship to begin our service, and I want to close with this. Your life is not in a state of non-worship, and we on Sunday morning call you out of non-worship and into worship. That's not true. You are worshiping something every day of your life, every second of every day. Your life is lived in worship of something, of something. There's something that you are prizing as most valuable. There is something you are directing your energies towards. Something that you find hope in. Something that you would sacrifice for. That's your worship. It will be yourself, perhaps, which ends in despair. It will perhaps be others, even the poor, even good causes, which will end up being futile and frustrating and confusing if separated and put above Christ. Or your life will be lived in pursuit of and ordered around the worth and the beauty of God, who in turn, when we do so, gives value and beauty and worth and meaning to us and to others who are made in His image in a way that actually endures. But He says, seek first My kingdom and My righteousness. Seek first to, to gaze upon the beauty of what Jesus has done. Turn your eyes on Jesus and remember what He has done and say, that is worth living for. That is worth ordering My life around whatever it costs. And when you do so, all these things will then be added unto you. Seek first His kingdom. Turn your eyes to Him and you will be blessed. Let us close our worship with that thought in mind. Heavenly Father, we, we do praise You. We want to see and understand Your worth, though at times uh, the things of earth obscure our vision. Though at times our other pursuits capture our hearts. We pray, Heavenly Father, that by the power of Your Spirit at work in us, that the hearts of Your children would be turned to look again upon You, upon the sacrifice that You make, upon what You have done and have promised to do, and of what that means for us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we do so, we would respond in genuine, sincere, joyful worship that doesn't stop when we leave these doors, but which flows over into how we spend money and time, how we speak to others, where we find hope, and in every other way, our lives would be 
would show evidence of the worth of Christ in our hearts. We pray this in the worthy name of Jesus. Amen.